1: Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a lecturer and a broadcaster, but most importantly, I'm your chief investigator of images. Today, I'm joined by a fellow art historian, so it's going to be proper nitty-gritty art history today, people. I am joined by Dr. Ben dore and you are an art historian, a specialist on the artist we're going to be dealing with today, but you've also dipped your toe into television presenting a lot, haven't you? you. are currently on lost Britain's Lost Masterpieces, is that right?
2: Yes, Britain's Lost and uh, we're doing a second series of that, which is very exciting.
1: Excellent. I love it. I love the idea that you find these hidden gems. That's what you're good at, isn't it? Sort of reattributing lost masterpieces.
2: Well, thank you. I've, I've been lucky enough to find a few uh, interesting lost pictures, and um, the, my favourite artist, who we're talking about today, and who I, I've been also lucky enough to find a few lost pictures by is Anthony Van Dyke, on whom I'm um, a slightly obsessive anorak. So (laughs) I'm very glad to have the opportunity to talk with you about these amazing pictures by Van Dyke.
1: And we are, of course, in the presence of one of his greatest works. We are in the National Gallery in London. What are we looking at?
2: Well, we're in the Mondroom in the National Gallery, which is uh, sort of ground zero for a Van Dyke anorak (laughs) like me, because it's chock full of his lovely portraits. And we're standing in front of his... Uh, equestrian portrait of Charles I, which is uh, painted around about 1635, I think, and it's well, it's it's sort of almost double decker big, isn't it? It's
1: huge. I, th- I think I read it was uh, three meters sixty by almost three meters across. It is a whopper, isn't it? Yeah. It completely dominates the room. Am I writing thinking it was originally meant to hang in Hampton Court? Is that It right?
2: hung at the end of a gallery in Hampton Court, yeah. Mm. So it was designed to in basically intimidate you. If you mm. We're very used to images these days. We see them everywhere. But if you can imagine being uh, you know, a gent or even a peasant or someone in the 1630s, and you've never seen portraiture on this scale, this level of fidelity before, to suddenly come across this image of King Charles I on a horseback in the landscape, um, around a corner of Hamter Court, it must have been absolutely extraordinary to see. I mean, talk about doing a double take.
1: It's a complete image of power, isn't it? And yeah. uh, if we give a little bit of, of description of it, um, so we've got this enormous horse, but with a remarkably small head.
2: <laughs> yes, a lot of people focus on that, actually. I think um, our image of, of a horse has, has changed mm. as the evolution of horses horse has changed, or the breeding of the horse has changed. So probably the head is it looks small to our eyes but I think it's probably as it was in those days it's one of these it's basically a fighting horse isn't it it's uh-huh. a massive great solid beast you can see its muscles rippling oh, yes. in the light and the king is sitting serenely atop of it in his suit of armour looking very in control
1: well he does doesn't he and and again I was uh, I did a bit of Thinking about Van Dyck and, and how he became the court painter for Charles the and one of the issues with the lots of people painting his portrait was, of course, his height. He was a small king, wasn't he? He was what five foot four, something like that.
2: He was five foot four, and he'd had, I think, he'd had rickets when he was oh, a really? wee boy. Yes, oh. and he was very much the runt of the litter. Oh. <laughs> Um, and so he, he, he clearly, you know, he had a somewhat, well, we call it a Napoleon complex today, but he, part of the reason he lured Van Dyck to Britain and uh, commissioned him to paint pictures like this was because he wanted to compensate for that. Yeah the fact that in reality he was small and weak but in pictorial image through van dyck's brush he was strong majestic and above all kingly
1: Mm, and and the use of the horse in these portraits because this this isn't the only equestrian portrait is it he was often painted on a horse
2: there were van dyck did three uh, horses of uh, pictures of of the king with a horse um, and this is the most uh, politically important I think because in this one he is. Are very much in control of this strong, muscular beast. And um, I sometimes come into this room with my pair of binoculars, and I would urge everyone to do that too. Because this you, is the anorak in you coming out again. One, yes. or, or the poor security guards think I'm some sort of uh, cat burglar or something. <laughs> um, but if you look at the mouth of this horse through binoculars, you can see that actually uh, it's foaming at the mouth. Yes, if you I can. Think... You can
1: see a little bit there of the spittle just it's, coming off the muzzle. Yeah, it's
2: drooling. <laughs> drooling. Um, and that is, I think, a symbol of uh, of how um, vigorous this horse is, and how the, the the king, who is looking very serene and calm, is able to control it with just with a light touch. He's holding the reins with one hand. Yeah. So this is obviously a metaphor for uh, you know kingliness in charge of the kingdom of, of Britain.
1: Mm, and and he's his position really as a philosopher king as well, isn't he? He's contemplating. He's thinking. He's not rushing headlong into battle. There's something quite serene about the whole composition.
2: Uh, yes, yes, I think, I think you could say that I mean the landscape looks quite calm doesn't mm. it? But we have on the right here a page yes. who is offering up uh, the helmet so there is a feeling uh, the, the king is wearing tilt armour so I think there's a feeling that he's about to go into some sort of battle or contest mm. uh, clearly he's going to win
1: <laughs> there's, there's a high level of fantasy in this though I read because yeah. the tilts hadn't really taken place since 1616 I think and so the idea that that he actually ever was going to, to ride at the tilt. <laughs> it's slightly fantastical. But that's how he wants to be seen, isn't it?
2: Yes, I think anyone who's five foot four and, wanted, and suffered, you know, who was a thin man, you wouldn't be playing jousting, would you?
1: No, it's not um, a sensible idea. Although the horse would do pretty well, I think. That's a pretty magnificent horse. There's, um, there's lots of symbolism going on around this image, isn't there? Do you want to point out some of the little secret hidden bits that are going on?
2: Uh, well, I think um, it's quite nice to see on the tree. There's a little uh, carved plaque which says uh, "Carolus Rex," was it "Magnae Britanniae"? So he's he's claiming to be king of Great Britain. So the the formal union of Scotland and England has not yet taken place, but Charles is saying he's king of the whole island. There's no mistaking it.
1: It's certainly a big statement, I think, at this point because if we're thinking 1630s, five, six, seven it's not yet reaching the crisis of civil war which comes in 42 but there is still grumblings and people are not happy with this king are they
2: no and i think that's obviously the great irony of this picture is that um charles was far from in control of the kingdom and uh, when, you know, when it came to the battle, he uh, lost, and he lost his head. Mm. Um, I, on a broader point, I think you can sort of dare to draw a parallel, in English history at least, between kings who love art and kings who were good kings. I completely uh, agree. <laughs> and so Charles I is top of the list, who, who loved painting. He used to collect pictures from all over Europe. He would play games of attribution by candlelight when they came into Whitehall Palace. He would open up the crates and go ecstatic about his latest issue. But he was no good as a king. And I think you could say the same for someone like George IV, can't mm. you? Mm. Um, Henry VII, who was a great king, couldn't really give two hoots about art. No,
1: no, absolutely, yeah. I think that's a really excellent point. And again, I think this is why the guise of the sort of... Philosopher King kind of suits him. And he's, it's interesting. I, I find a really interesting contrast with the art of the court in Spain at this time, because Valescreth is painting the Spanish court and he's really muted, always in black, always very severe and strong looking. Whereas this is sort of baroque flamboyance, isn't mm. it?
2: Yes. Um, well, that's part of Van Dyck's genius. Um, if you were to compare the portraiture available to someone like Charles I, Um, you know, in the 1620s even, uh, it was very static, there was no movement, there was no idea that someone could paint a realistic image of a horse moving along Mm. like this. Mm. And so that is why Charles uh, put all that effort into luring Van Dyke to Britain in 1632. He promised him a knighthood, a pension, a gold chain worth 200 quid, an apartment (laughs) in a palace, basically all the trimmings Van Dyke got in order to help create these fantastical images, which made the king look, and I suppose feel, more monarchical than he really was.
1: It's, it's real propaganda in that sense. I mean, we can look at it as a stunning piece of art that's beautifully executed, beautifully painted, but there's an awful lot of um, messaging going on yes. with this, isn't there? Yes. And, and, and the timing is crucial. But, but in terms of Van Dyck's style, what is it that, that has made you quite the obsessive about it? <laughs>
2: Well, um, I, I'm, I mainly got into art history through portraiture, and for me, there's no one better than Van Dyck in terms of not only painting a likeness of someone, but allowing their character, or what one can discern to be a bit of character, to come through. Often, I think, with portraiture, it's a sort of battle between the ego of the artist and the sitter, mm. and sometimes the ego of the artist steamrolls any semblance of the sitter, and they're, mm. they're just made to become a caricature. Uh, Rubens, for example, is a great painter, but he's not a good portraitist. Whereas Van Dyck... Uh, allows the sitter to, to, you know, to really come out in the portraits and I think that's, um, that's what I, I, I love about his pictures and of course he was such a, a great technician um, you know, this was a guy who was painting portraits commercially uh, from the age of 13 uh, and he could paint as easily as you and I breathe
1: amazing and he was pa- by
2: Rubens, he, he spent a long time in Rubens's studio. Yes, um, and basically the the artists, you know, the great artists available to Van to transfer, sorry, were in Northern Europe. Rubens and Van Dyck, and they tried to lure Rubens across. It didn't really work out. Um, although they got the amazing Banqueting Hall ceiling, oh, yes. um, but uh, he wasn't playing ball. So they got uh, Van Dyck, and and Van Dyck, of course, then goes on to transform British portraiture because we're seeing repetitions of Van Dyke's influence on British portrait right up until the 19th century with people like uh, Lawrence and then later Sargent. And he, he totally uh, transforms, in a way, the way we see ourselves in Britain as well.
1: How, oh, that's very interesting as an idea. So, OK, that, that's worth exploring, isn't it? This, so is it the drama, the style, what is it then that's, that's leading to this sort of long connection with Van Dyke's portraiture
2: um, I, I think it's the fact that he allows uh, you know a real pre, a real human presence to come through in portraits until Van Dyke arrived it was all about statements of you know whether your costume was looking golden or blingy the lace was good and very much the identity of the person was subsumed mm-hmm. uh, when Van Dyke comes along he can allow a canvas like this picture of the king on the horse to look like a real person on a real horse. Mm. Um, and in Britain, we're particularly fond of painting ourselves because we've had the Reformation, so we don't do religious art. Of course. And we don't really go in for history painting. We're a little bit egotistical, and we love to have pictures of ourselves on the wall. So, it's either
1: ourselves, our houses, or our gardens.
2: Or sometimes our horses. <laughs> or our dogs. Yes, yeah, dogs and horses. It. Yeah. And that's the sort of the contents of most stately homes. Yeah. And Van Dyck creates the template for that.
1: Amazing. I hadn't thought about it all coming back to Van Dyke. How interesting. I mean, there's a tension in this, isn't there? Because we're in a room where there are other Van Dykes around. And I I mean, I Mm. think when you see the variety he can bring to these characters. With Charles, I always feel maybe that he's very much at the service of the image of power. And... I don't know yes. if I'm getting the real Charles I coming through.
2: I think that's, that's, that's a fair comment, actually. And particularly for these royal portraits, there is a, a, a visual tradition that Van Dyke is having to operate within. So if you consider that one of um, Van Dyke's early portraits of Charles is, is the, what we call the great piece, mm-hmm. where he's sitting with his wife and kids, oh, and yes. it's the family picture. It's on the same scale as this massive one in front of us. Mm-hmm. And that is very much... a following on from the famous Holbein mural of Henry VIII and his family. Mm. And you've got to have this idea of of life-size images of the royal family looking kingly and also in charge of the nation. The nation, the family is the extension of the nation. Mm. Um, And I think another uh, thing that we don't often associate, uh, remember with this portrait of Van Dyke, of Charles I I on horseback, is that he's Charles is, is consciously bettering the portraits of his brother, Henry, Prince of Wales, right? Who, of course, was destined to become king, but died. Charles got promoted up the line, and for this exact composition, there is also there was already a portrait of Henry on a horse like this by Robert Peake, um, who was not a great painter. Bless him, you know, A for effort, Robert, but you weren't as good as this
1: <laughs> so he has bettered his brother in that respect where, where did that was that in a, a prominent place yes then, it so? would
2: have been and, and i think it's really a case of sibling rivalry here oh, wow. um,
1: but also i think rivalry with other european courts as well because um, again with charles wasn't he supposed to be betrothed to a spanish queen and then en- a princess and then ended up at marrying a french bourbon bourbon princess.
2: Is that right? Uh, yes, there's this rather pathetic mission that Charles first goes on to Madrid to try <laughs> and woo. Uh, he sent packing. But actually, when he's there, he, he forms one of his great passions for art and sees all the Titians and mm. and what have you.
1: And he is rather um, obsessed with Titian as well. We should sort of see this in the tradition of, of Titian's work as well.
2: Yes, we? and I think that's one of the reasons that Charles and Van Dyke bonded, but because they both loved Titian. Um, and if anything is influencing Van Dyke here, it is Titian. Um, there's a there's a, an equestrian portrait of, of Charles V on horseback, very like this by Titian.
1: Yeah, a very important piece that one, isn't yeah. it? That's influenced yeah. a lot of equestrian portraits. And actually the idea of the equestrian image sculpture portrait goes right back to imperial times doesn't it Mm -hmm. Um, and it's in many ways um not only a symbol of power but it's also a way of showing the virtuosity of the artist isn't it uh
2: yes i think um yeah
1: because I, mean, I remember reading about the sculptures of horses. That to do a, a, a bronze, for example, of a horse is incredibly difficult because you've got this huge carcass of heavy metal and just a couple of little sticky legs that you have to get to balance. So if you can show a leg raised, yes. that shows that you were even better as a sculpture, as a sculptor. But I, I do think that the the way that he's done the horse is is particularly effective and dramatic. It's it's interesting the way that the horse almost resembles Charles. There's the sort of the wavy, dark hair, isn't there? Yes, I hadn't noticed
2: that before. Maybe. <laughs> God.
1: But there's, there's other things too. The fact that he's in armour, obviously that's supposed to bulk him out and show him as a strong warrior. He's yeah. wearing the Order of the Garter as well, is that right? right yes, and a
2: in the, in the chain there. That's the, the preeminent order of, of royal chivalry.
1: So he's tying himself back to a tradition of, of chivalry, but also this idea, I suppose, of the divine rights of kings.
2: Uh, yes, and look how that one worked out. <laughs>
1: Um. <laughs> it, was, it was getting a little bit outdated by this point, <laughs> so he lost his head for it. But um, it, I, th- I do see it, I love images that show you a moment captured in time, and this for me is, is Charles trying to almost hold back the tide of uh, you know, what will become the Civil War and what will become Parliamentarian uprising with this, I think, quite in a way, backwards-referencing image. It's referencing old masters, it's referencing imperial power of the past, yeah. it's referencing knighthood and chivalry.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that all contrasts with what uh, Cromwell comes in and does, doesn't it?
2: Yes, and you'd never have had uh, a Cromwell sitting for a portrait like this. Although what's interesting, actually, in the, um, in the interregnum is that this kind of imagery becomes so associated with power not just royal power, mm. is that the parliamentarians then carry on being painted as if they were being painted by Van Dyke. Oh and there's an engraving of one of the equestrian portraits of Charles I by Van Dyke, which then gets uh, the head of Charles rubbed out and a head of Cromwell dropped into it, sort of classic cut and pasting from the 17th century. That's
1: amazing. So although
2: Cromwell himself would have been deeply uncomfortable with, you know, sitting for a... An egotistical portrait like this, he was still there, for, uh, nonetheless sort of dragooned into complying with the imagery that Van Dyck had associated with authority in Britain.
1: How amazing that he even went that deep, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm interested about this idea of, I suppose, the dropping in of details, because when you see such an enormous canvas like this, can we say that it's all Van Dyke's
3: hand, or is he working with people? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: Um, I think in a picture like this, it's, it's one would call it all autograph. I okay. mean, every every detail is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, probably he had assistance, you know, to help him prepare the canvas or put in the, what we call the ground layer, that sort of thing. But you wouldn't call this Van Dyken Studio.
1: Okay. Um, okay. That's important, isn't it? Because, again, I think it's one of these things we tend to have lost track of as time's gone on. We we, we forget that there are schools, there are new studios where ma- perhaps the master might only drop in and do the face or the hands. Yes. And then the rest will be uh, done by, by students. But but this is all, this. you feel, feel this has his touch all over it.
2: I think it does, yeah. I mean, Van Dyke, like all contemporary painters in that period, was quite naughty about seeing what he could get away with. So um, there was a famous case where he was uh, asked to send some royal portraits to Spain uh-huh. And when they opened them up, they soon realised that he'd sent studio copies, but he charged them for the real deal. You see, Ooh. but he was only, you know, behaving like Rubens, who was very open about um, his sort of, you know, price scale for the amount of involvement that Rubens. Directly put in himself.
1: So he learnt from Rubens how to do the business of
2: art, really. Oh, definitely. I mean, mm. we often forget. It's our nineteenth century, sort of nineteenth and twentieth century ideal of the artist is a sort of romantic, labouring lone hero. Exactly. But they were small businessmen Absolutely. and uh, functioning much as any small business would.
1: Mm. Yeah, we completely get uh, bamboozled by this idea of the biography, the genius, the frustrated individual, yeah. uh, and this, this is this is work for. What commission it's, it's in a way it's to decorate great palaces it's to make big statements um, this is a poster for the campaign of Charles as king isn't it yeah. <laughs> in lots of ways yeah. and, and does this actual image get reproduced in any other formats
2: um, good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm sure it would do.
1: Because mm, once you've got something as iconic as this, uh, the other one I adore is the one with the triumphal arch, where yes. the horse is sort of storming through. Yes, and that's got a drama to it. This this one's much more peaceful, I tend to think. Um, do we know where it's set? Where the where in the
2: landscape it is at all? Not a clue, actually. Mm. No. And there's someone's PhD thesis in that. Isn't
1: there, is, there isn't that because I can definitely out. see a little bridge down there. He's done <laughs> he's done the sky absolutely. Absolutely, beautifully, I have to say. Yes. And how do you go about attributing a Van Dyke? What is it that you look for with the eye of the connoisseur? What do you see?
2: Um, I, I think you're just... First of all, the first thing is the quality. And that, I know that's a very subjective thing, but once you've seen enough Van Dykes, you can begin to discern where Van Dyke's own hand is coming in, as, say, compared to a studio assistant or, indeed, a later copyist. Mm-hmm. Um but in pictures like this uh, where the quality is pretty knockout it's mm. quite easy to discern um, but you know there are other sort of telltale signs which actually I think we can see in this picture, one, one likes to see what we call pentimenti yes. which is you know evidence of the artist changing his mind and I think on this picture from where I am you can't see it but there are various changes in the horse's feet and legs i think you
1: can almost make it out can't you against yeah so oh wow okay so that that again that would show creative process that he's working it out on the canvas going yes. back correcting it
2: unlikely to be the work of a copyist I mean, it's not hard and fast rule, all but these these are some of the things we we would want to see
1: okay and um i mean it, it, there is something distinctive about the way he does I, I was looking at the the portrait down there of the three children, hmm. and um, the gold, the the metallics, the way that he gets light into his paint I think is yes, remarkable
2: yes. yes, I mean again these are very subjective considerations but with Van Dyke when you're seeing a Van Dyke autograph face you get a sense of a sort of bones beneath the flesh mm. and like as you were saying with the costume and the armour here you get a sort of tangible sense of metal that you can almost tap and it would go ping <laughs> yes. whereas the work of a copyist would be much more uh, two dimensional flat, uh, lifeless in fact
1: mm. And have you found any Van Dykes then in your
2: um, I have found a few in fact, I was uh, delighted uh, one of my favorite finds was a self portrait of him, ah. um, which we found in an auction in Cologne in Germany some years ago. Mm-hmm. It was being sold as a copy, but it turned out to be the real deal um, had been substantially overpainted and actually last year it was on display here in the National Gallery. Oh, yeah, and they had it and uh, they had a poster of it outside and facing Trafalgar Square. Oh, that's that such size, a wonderful
1: thing to do. Which be I evolving. posed
2: for many selfies in front of.
1: My life achievement. <laughs> but it is something that I come up against when I'm teaching art history is you know, that we, we come from a discipline that is incredibly diverse and there are so many different types of art historians. Mm. And I mean I sort of sit, I think, more in the camp of the iconographer, the symbol reader, the the person who likes to see an image as a, as a historical gateway almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the other end of the spectrum, the training of the eye, the eye of the connoisseur, the person who can tell from the pose of a hand or you know, the way that ears have been painted, mm-hmm. which artist has painted it where, how, yes. That's the skill, obviously, that you've learned to develop over many, many years. Yes. How do you, how do you go about that?
2: <laughs> it sounds quite mystical, but actually it's just practice. Uh-huh. Um, and in the same way that you can, you know, when a letter drops on your doormat um, and you can recognize from the, the address the way it's written, without opening the letter and seeing a signature, you know who sent you the letter. And it's a bit the same with, with this game. You just have to spend ages looking close looking and that's why I go around places with binoculars because you, it's not just good enough to stand back and go oh that's a lovely picture you've got to actually stick your nose to the canvas and, uh, and really get to know how the artist worked
1: and is this something then that you were doing even when you were very young were you, were you into painting, so?
2: Um I wasn't actually no I got into it quite late Oh. Um, I have to confess, I never studied art history. I'm a historian by training.
1: That's okay. I'll let you <laughs> off. <laughs> I, I actually did English literature before I oh, got into art history, so I was all about the poetry and. <laughs> 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 but yes, I think you—you know—it it can come late in life, can't it? The passion yes, for it. Yes. Um, but that's really interesting. So you've given yourself all these skills relatively late. Then you've—you've you've had to go and look extensively
2: yeah uh, the world. and it's been what a what a, what a a fun profession I, I can't <laughs> I'm so lucky to do it for a living mm. uh, just you know um, sniffing pictures what fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you get involved with any of the um, chemical analyses of these things because I think science yeah, is useful. moving it in a really interesting yes, direction yes, isn't it yes
2: very useful
1: um, I mean when you founded Van Dyke. Did it have to get sent off for scientific analysis?
2: Um, we did things like X-ray and infrared and all that stuff, which revealed you know, that he changed the position of his hand, oh. and so that was a good sign. Um, and it told us how he'd built up the various ground layers. Uh, the science can usually tell you what something is not, uh-huh. uh, it, 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 and it can tell you that possibly this came from Van Dyck's studio because that's how he painted. Okay. But he may have taught someone to paint like him. So in order to kind of judge whether it's the artistic genius Mm. of Van Dyck himself, you sort of still need the human eye. It is
1: remarkably unscientific as well as being (laughs) quite formal and scientific in itself, isn't it? There's still that element of of doubt and ambiguity with every great work that comes up.
2: And that's part of the problem of connoisseurship. And the reason it's got a slightly controversial air in Mm. art history Mm. is it's damn difficult to explain it you yeah. know i'm standing here struggling to explain to you how i know that's by van dyke because it's a mental process that absolutely. i can't really explain
1: but i love that analogy of the handwriting on a letter i think you're absolutely right and and it is the case that you do uh, I, I try and teach my students across the course of you know three four years that they should after a while almost intuitively understand how artists Compose their scenes, how Mm -hmm. they arrange their materials, what subjects they're drawn to, what colours they're drawn to. Um, I mean, I think that what's interesting about Van Dyck is that that, that he does use relatively muted colours, here. Yeah. But that's not across the board, is
2: it? Well, no, he, that's why he, uh, in connoisseurial terms, mm. he's a very difficult painter to get your head around mm. because he changes his style every almost every two years. No, not completely changes his style, but you know, a picture from the 1620s by Van Dyck would look very different from one from the 1630s. Oh, interesting. And you can, often people will go to a Van Dyck exhibition and feel like there's three or four artists at work. Mm. But that's because he was so good.
1: So good, but also, didn't he? I mean, he must have been influenced by each place he went to because he's trained in Antwerp. Yes. And then he goes to Genoa, doesn't he? Genoa, yeah, and
2: Sicily. And Sicily.
1: And then, of course, he comes to London. And wherever he is, and whichever patron he's working for, he's almost, I suppose, adapting slightly to his needs, to the needs of his, his patrons. Yes. Um, and does that affect it then, the place that he's in, how he?
2: Certainly, in when he's in Italy, he's much more influenced by the likes of Titian. Mm. Uh, and the very interesting and revealing thing about him biographically is, when he comes to England, he he lets go a bit. Oh. He doesn't try so hard. Oh. And you get a lot of what we call and-studio pictures when he's painting in England. Oh. So sort of pictures where he's not really put in the effort.
1: Is that because he's just on this cushy number? He's got this paid-up cheque from well, the king? I think
2: it's because he knows that in England he can get away with it.
1: Ah, because because there aren't the discerning...
2: There aren't the discerning connoisseurs here. Oh and, and our artistic standard is way beneath anything on continental Europe. And indeed, we're reliant as you know, in English art on immigrants until the 18th century because there's no native school. So he's coming here, he's not being impressed by Robert Peake. He's thinking, oh, I can get away with this, and uh, charge you know, extra.
1: That is so interesting. I, forget. I mean, this, again, it's the way that we read our own nation's history. We tend to prioritise our concerns, our dates, our great figures, and yet we were an artistic backwater for many, many centuries, weren't we? Yes,
2: yes. Um, and then Hogarth comes along and changes everything.
1: Makes it better. Yeah. Makes it better. It breathes a bit of life into yeah. it, definitely. Um, we. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more we could say about, this image, I think that the the fact that there's so much symbolism. Because is that an oak tree behind as well that we've got there?
2: Uh, good question. Oh God, I don't know. I'm just uh...
1: I'm just reading it for symbols because that's the sort of nutty thing I like to do. But listen, we we could carry on talking about this endlessly. It's such a pleasure to talk to you because oh, I am great. not a connoisseur, and I I find the whole world of buying and selling art frantically kind of bewildering. I know what i consider to be valuable art but it's often art of a zeitgeist art of a spirit mm. whereas to actually put value on art i find that, that, that very difficult yeah. um i really respect what you do and oh, i'd love to you. come and see you at work one day what's oh, your we'll connoisseurial yeah. art yeah. Uh, your connoisseurial eye you kind of do your job um thank you absolutely, it's been Great absolutely fantastic we'll have to do another one another time yeah. um you're on twitter aren't you
2: Uh, Yes, Art History News.
1: Art History News. I love following you on Twitter. Um, I am on Twitter too. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can download the rest of the series at historyahit.com slash art detective. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of one of the biggest and the best equestrian portraits here. Thank you, Bendo. It's been wonderful.